Welcome everyone to season five of the Equip Project podcast. We haven't actually released any new content since December, so it's great to be back sitting alongside Jim Crooks. Welcome, Jim. Uh, thank you, Ollie. Uh, I have to say it's entirely my fault that we've started this season a little lit. Uh, I can only repent in sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> we, we lost a week because I was incredibly stupid following a trip to the dentist last week. Uh, while my mouth was still frozen up, I somehow managed to uh, chew the left side of my tongue, which has had a disastrous effect on my speech. <laughs> in fact, I was preaching in a church on Sunday night, and I had to apologize because my speech was slurred. And I really hope they didn't think I'd been hitting the bottle. Yeah, I mean, you have a lot of horror stories when it comes to the dentist, Jim. I do. do I, I you do. must get pretty nervous before you go nowadays. No, I've just become inured to the whole thing. <laughs> you just uh, know it's going to yeah. be bad no matter <laughs> yes, what. that's right. Yes. Yeah, but I'm sorry it's been a, a rough week for you, and it, it sounds like a painful episode. That being said, I am going to have to dig out the recording of your sermon uh, <laughs> on Sunday for my own amusement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you did very well regardless. <laughs> well, I don't know. But anyway, I am genuinely looking forward to this upcoming season because I, I think we have stumbled on a really important idea here. We're, we're going to talk about origins Um as the medieval poet Dante famously said, consider your origins. You were not made to live as brutes. I'm actually really disappointed that I didn't use that line on our promotional content, but there's still plenty of time. I might actually crack it out, um, put it put it on a banner over a nice yep. um, depressing image. <laughs> but I'm, I'm also really pleased with our theme for this series, Jim, because the idea of origins is relevant for everyone, because we all live within a story. And the beginning of a story is the seed from which everything grows. Charles Darwin's book changed the world precisely because it gave society a new origin story, the origin of species. That's right. The grand opening words of Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Those words had shaped the West's worldview for 1800 years. Darwin changed the beginning and that changed the world. So in this season, we'll be looking back at the origin of some really important concepts. So we're going to consider the origin of money, the origin of cities, the origin of law, and our understanding of how these things came about will actually determine what we then think of them. That's right. So what should we make of the concept of money? Uh, We're just starting to move into the new world of cryptocurrencies, uh, and that move will reshape our view of money. But to really understand money, you need to go back to the beginning and see how we got from, I don't know, bartering carrots uh, to the global financial system we depend on today. I mean, the Bible, particularly in the book of the Revelation, envisages a time when that financial system will come crashing down. So it's important that we think deeply about money. Uh, Then there's law. Uh, I mean, just think at uh, what's happening at the moment uh, with the proposed ban on so-called conversion therapy. There's this sense that society is starting to use law as a weapon, as an instrument of power. And, and that raises the question of what law actually is. Uh, but to understand law, we need to go back and look at its origin. And so that will take us back to Mount Sinai uh, in that episode. And then I'm particularly excited by our final episode of this series, Jim, because we're going to think about the origin of a brand new concept, one that may well transform society in a way that we can hardly imagine. We're going to think about the origin of the so-called metaverse. But I think we'll find that actually as we consider that topic, uh, that modern idea, it actually has its origins in some ancient concepts like Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. So that's effectively the big idea for season five, Origins. If you want to understand something, you work out where it came from. I have to say, Ollie, I was very impressed by your branding 
for this series. Thank you, Jim. I think I even saw a little colour. Um, some green emerged from the blackness in one of the graphics, and it made me feel all warm on the inside. I did that for you, Jim. I know you've been longing for a bit of colour, um, but despite the colour, I still managed to make a spooky and sombre little promo trailer. You to, did. Just to get everyone uh, depressed as, as per usual. But I appreciate that Jim, that, that's, that's encouraged me. That's lifted my spirits. Um, in in this first episode, Jim, we're going to talk about the origin of humanity itself. How did human beings arrive onto the stage of history? It's a really hot topic in Christian circles at the moment. Lots of books have been published and conferences held on the question of Adam and Eve. Are Adam and Eve real historical figures? Did they literally exist? It has been perhaps the biggest clash between science and theology in my lifetime, and the controversy seems to have been even more heated in the past few years. So I wanted to start by looking at the clash between Genesis and the scientific discipline called genetics, and then we'll discuss why the issue matters so much. And once we've done that, I want to ask you about some of the recent attempts Christians have made to resolve the tension. Okay, well, let's start by um, <clears throat> setting out the, the science controversy. Um, I, I, I'm going to set out my own stall at the outset and say a few things about how I think we should think about Genesis 1-11. to I mean, I have no doubt that some of our listeners will disagree with me on some of the positions I'm going to adopt, so I shall rely on their Christian grace and forbearance. So personally, I, I don't think the Bible tells us how old the universe is or how old the earth is. So I, I, I don't assume that the six days of creation were contiguous 24-hour periods. Now, there's a much stronger case to be made uh, for the age of humanity from Scripture. Um, if the various generations listed in Genesis are added up, then humanity is about 6,000 years old. But you have to remember that genealogies in the Bible are always included for theological reasons, and so they're often stylized. And by stylized, I mean that, yes, every named individual was a real actual person, but some abridgment took place, some generations were skipped on occasion. I mean, if you take Matthew's famous genealogy in the first chapter of his gospel, he, he divides time up into three big movements with 14 generations in each. And so we know that he leaves some generations out uh, because his real aim is to give this sweeping overview of, of the entire Old Testament salvation history. And something similar can be discerned in the Genesis genealogies. Um, the lists in chapter 5 and chapter 11 uh, are clearly symmetrical. Um, so some abridgment was almost certainly involved. So that means that we don't have the right to assert an age for humanity. Okay, so from your perspective then, Jim, the issue of time and the age of humanity isn't a problem. So what then is the clash with science when it comes to Adam and Eve? The problem emerges from the field of genetics. Um, the recent brilliant work performed by scientists has decoded the human genome, and we now have real insight into our own genetic code, into the gene sequences that make up our DNA. And the argument goes that our DNA shows so much genetic diversity that it is impossible to have come from a single couple called Adam and Eve. It might be good to quote the atheist scientist Jerry Coyne at this point. He says the genetic data shows no evidence of any human bottleneck as small as two people. There are simply too many different types of genes around for that to be true. There may have been a couple of bottlenecks that reduced population sizes in the history of our species, but the smallest one not involving recent colonization is a bottleneck of roughly 10,000 to 15,000 individuals. 
So the accusation is that the genesis account of Adam and Eve is scientifically implausible. Um, the human population today exhibits um, a lot of genetic diversity, and the mathematical models that project back into the past say that that level of genetic diversity could not have come from a bottleneck of two people. Um, now, Coyne is a little out of date because more recent genetic models concede the possibility of a bottleneck of 2,000, but definitely not two. And it's not just atheist scientists who have attacked the idea of a literal Adam and Eve. In 2017, two Christians called Dennis Venema and Scott McKnight published a book called Adam and the Genome, Reading Scripture After Genetic Science. In their book, they agree with Jerry Coyne that a literal Adam and Eve is scientifically impossible. Yes, interestingly, uh, Scott McKnight was one of the speakers at New Horizon a few years back. Uh, he lives in a different theological stable than I do, to be honest. But both McKnight and Venema are leading figures in the BioLogos initiative, which was started by Francis Collins a long time ago. And the BioLogos people are, are what we might call uh, theistic evolutionists. In other words, they accept evolutionary theory in its entirety, but add in a sort of divine guidance layer over the top. So they see no tension between Genesis 1-11 to and contemporary science. McKnight and Venema say at one point in their book that the impossibility of Adam and Eve is as certain as the truth that the earth goes around the sun. That seems quite shocking. That's <laughs> a very big claim, isn't it? Particularly for Christians to make. But, but the interesting thing is that Biologus has rolled back from that um, certainty and now offers up a variety of interpretations of Adam and Eve. So according to some of them, Adam and Eve represent the beginning of Israel. Others say that Adam and Eve are literary archetypes. And others say that they, there was an actual couple chosen by God, but chosen out of a community of Neanderthal farmers, uh, farmers who had evolved from chimpanzees, of course. So we've probably done enough there, Jim, to sketch out the problem space. Before we turn to the recent controversies within Christian circles over Adam and Eve, let's think about why it matters. Why does it matter? if Adam and Eve existed or not. Right, well, let, let me quote something you said a couple of minutes ago back to you. Um, the beginning of a story is the seed from which everything grows. If you change the origin story, then the whole story gradually unravels. And I think jettisoning the concept of, a, of an historical Adam and Eve ends up destroying your view of salvation, your view of Scripture, and your view of Christ. I mean, it simply can't be denied that the Apostle Paul bases his explanation of salvation on the premise that Adam was a real man who lived an actual life. Romans 5.12, Paul says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. So Paul sees Adam and Eve as the floodgate through which evil cascaded into the world. It's because we are in Adam, descended from him, that every aspect of our personalities has been ruined by sin. Paul then contrasts our humanity in the man Adam with the new humanity offered in the man Christ Jesus. Now, what happens to all that theology if you reduce Adam and Eve to a literary archetype? I mean, I, I remember once talking to a Christian man who thought my view of Genesis was embarrassingly naive. It's a metaphor, Jim, he said. We have all been in the garden, we've all eaten the forbidden fruit, and we've all been separated from God. It's a picture of what happens to each of us. Well, that might seem like a nice idea to people who see themselves as autonomous individuals. But Paul's entire scheme of salvation is corporate. We, we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. Human beings must always have a root. Being descended from our father Adam is just part of being human. And being transplanted into the body of Christ is how we receive eternal life. 
You also mentioned that giving up on a historical Adam and Eve affects our view of scripture. And I think this is a really important point, Jim. If it is logically impossible for Adam and Eve to have existed, and at the same time, the Bible asserts that they did in fact exist, then the Bible must contain falsehoods. And so the whole question of the inspiration of scripture is made uncertain. That's right. And and in fact, that argument can be applied to the Lord Jesus himself. I mean, it's indisputable that Christ regarded Adam and Eve as literal historical figures. Uh, When he's talking about them, he doesn't say Moses said. He says the creator said. So if Adam and Eve were not, in fact, historical figures, then Christ himself has spoken untruths, which means he cannot be divine. So the stakes are incredibly high here, Ollie, um, in this game. Jettison an historical Adam and Eve and your salvation history, your doctrine of scripture and your Christology all start to unravel. Origin stories matter. Absolutely. Absolutely, they do, Jim. Okay, so we've, we've discussed the problem and we've seen how high the stakes are. The question then is, can the tension between the Bible and science actually be resolved? Well, three main attempts have been made. Uh, There's an older solution that was proposed in the 1980s, late 1980s. And then in the past couple of years, uh, two new novel and interesting solutions have been proposed. And I I don't agree with either of them, but they might open up the possibility of a better solution in the future. The 1980s solution has a really strange name. It's called Mitochondrial Eve. Amazingly, the theory made the front page of the newspapers when it was announced. Each of us have a tiny special little chromosome called the mitochondria. We inherit it from our mothers, and in 1987, scientists discovered that all our mitochondrial DNA can be traced back to a single woman, the mother of all mothers. She was nicknamed Eve. And then a few years later, the same discovery was made about the Y chromosome. So chromosomal Adam was invented, the father of all fathers. So this older solution uses genetic research to argue positively for a first couple. Now, a common uh, counter-argument was that mitochondrial Eve lived about 140,000 years ago, while chromosomal Adam lived a mere 60,000 years ago. Now, But that dating has been revisited, uh, and it's now regarded as possible, uh, if not probable, but possible, that the mother of all mothers and the father of all fathers lived at the same time. Now, that sounds like a really compelling argument, and some Christian apologists still use it. But other serious Christians are unconvinced. They argue that mitochondrial Eve doesn't solve the genetic diversity problem we talked about earlier. Uh, To get back to a single couple, you would need to start humanity's story much, much earlier, more than 500,000 years ago. Um, I mean, one one of the problems of the mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosome Adam is that the DNA in question is less than 2% of the total genome. So the older 1980s solution to the problem uh, can't be regarded as a simple winner. Two new solutions have come out in the past couple of years. The first is described in a book called The Genealogical Adam and Eve and is written by a Christian called Joshua Swamadas. The other proposal comes from a much better known apologist, the philosopher William Lane Craig. How do these solutions work then, Jim? Well, okay, we'll start with the Swamadas solution first. I mean, astonishingly, uh, Joshua Swamadas presents a model that sets a literal Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden about 6,000 years ago. I mean, that should make any young earth creationist very happy indeed. He also proposes that Adam and Eve were specially created by God from the dust of the ground, as recorded in Genesis 2. So how on earth does he explain the genetic diversity problem? Well, says Fomadas, the standard model of evolution played out its story over hundreds of millions of years. Homo sapiens evolved from chimpanzees. 
but they lived outside the garden, if you like. Then God made Adam and Eve as special creations. They were genetically and physiologically identical to the creatures that had evolved outside the garden, but with uh, those outside had no spiritual dimension to their lives. And then after the fall, Adam's descendants interbreed with the evolved Homo sapiens. And because of the way the mathematical models work, it's entirely possible that by the time we get to, say, the year 1 AD, by the time of Christ, every human on the planet could trace their genealogy back to a literal Adam and Eve. Yeah, my when you first told me that, my gut reaction was like, that is just really weird. It just it sounds very weird, doesn't it? Uh, and I think not only that, it raises all sorts of difficult questions about what a human being actually is. Were the Homo sapiens who roamed the earth outside the garden moral and spiritual creatures? Or were they Nephilim, perhaps, those strange beings mentioned in Genesis 6? Well, your guess is as good as mine. But the criticism you've just raised caused William Lane Craig to propose his own solution. Now, Craig, to his credit, cannot stomach the thought of evolved humanoids living outside the garden who are not fully human. So what he does is to pull Adam and Eve way back in time, way, way back to before the division between the Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. So he goes back to about 750,000 years ago, to Heidelberg Man. And that requires him to endow the Neanderthals with full humanity. But by going back so far in time, he solves the genetic diversity problem, because the models can't really see anything further than half a million years. Now, Craig has come in for a lot of criticism for his theory. But to his credit, he has stuck with the concept of an historical Adam and Eve. And he's arrived at a model that avoids Swamidas' humanoids roaming around outside the Garden of Eden. And what do you make of Craig's argument then? Do you think he's right? Well, it all just seems too odd for me, I have to say. <clears throat> my, my main criticism of Craig's book, and it is a serious criticism, isn't actually about his proposal that Adam was Heidelberg man. I mean, he, he spends a great deal of time arguing that the Genesis 1 to 11 chapters form a literary genre that he calls mytho-history. And, and I have to say that section of his book caused my blood pressure to rise because I get completely fed up with people who argue that Genesis 1 to 11 is like the Babylonian or the Arcadian creation myths. Now, I'm going to go on a rant here, Ollie. I love it. I love it when you go on a rant. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Look, here's the point. Anyone with a GCSE in English literature could see that Genesis 1 to 11 is nothing like those Babylonian myths. Now, there are bits of the Bible that could fit into that genre. Think of the epic poem in Habakkuk 3 or Psalm 18, for example. But the Genesis account is really quite matter-of-fact. There are no sea monsters or chariots of fire or so on and so on. So in terms of its style, Genesis 1-11 to is more like a set of postcards that record real historical moments. Uh, actually, a, a better metaphor might, might be the photo album you create on your phone after you've been on holiday. Okay, so every foot, every picture you show me records an actual historical moment. Okay, um, a meal under the stars, or Rachel eating ice cream, or something like that. But but the photo album doesn't record everything. I would learn nothing about the complex machinery inside the airplane that flew you to your vacation destination. I'd know nothing about the hours spent waiting in the baggage reclaim hall. In other words, your photo album leaves out most of the logistical complexity behind your vacation. It only records the important bits. So that's how, personally, I, I take Genesis 1-11. to It's a set of historical portraits assembled together for a theological purpose. Each portrait records an actual historical event, but there's a massive complexity sitting behind and between those events that has been left out. So liberal Christians should be 
wary of reducing Genesis 1 to 11 to a myth. It just sets alarm bells going off in my head, I have to say. <clears throat> On the other side of the fence, there, there is a, a hard lesson here for conservative Christians who try to use Genesis 1 to 11 to develop a complete geological or genetic model. I mean, that exercise is like me trying to understand an airplane by looking at your holiday snaps. Okay. So anyway, end of round. <laughs> I applaud Craig for doing his best to defend the idea of an historical Adam and Eve, but I criticize him severely for reducing Genesis 1 to 11 to mytho-history. So overall, I have to say that I wish he hadn't written this particular book. Where does that leave us then, Jim? Uh, do we have to just disagree with the scientists or do we have to accept one of these novel and slightly weird proposals? How should young adults, young Christian adults handle this issue? Well, I'm going to set out three principles. The first is we should start with scripture and not science. Okay, that's the first principle. So given the theological significance of an historical Adam and Eve, we just need to hold to that doctrine. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean that we should immediately um, go into battle against science as we, as we understand it today. Okay? Um, sometimes we just need to be patient. And, and that, that leads me to my second principle. The main advice here is to reserve judgment on some matters. Live with the tension that says, I don't quite know at the moment how this all works yet. Now, that is a perfectly respectable intellectual position to adopt because you've got to remember that genetics as a discipline is incredibly young. Yes, astonishing progress has been made, but scientists would be the first to admit that we're only scratching the surface of genetics at this moment. Okay, that is actually quite a hard idea to get our heads around, to be honest. I struggle with that uncertainty. Can you give me an example of when it's right to reserve judgment in that way? Yes, it's a hard and very grown-up point I'm making here, so I'm going to actually give you a couple of examples. Um, a couple of examples where I personally reserve judgment. Um, I, I watched a video not long ago. It was recorded by a, a Christian biologist who was scoffing at fellow believers who rejected the notion of common descent. Okay, Why can't we accept that humans and chimps are more closely related than a mouse is to a rat, he asked. Well, I was sitting in my kitchen, so I shouted back at the screen, there is a blindingly obvious gulf between a human and a chimp. So obviously the tool you're using to measure closeness of relationship isn't fit for purpose. It's so simplistic that it's useless. You see, I, I strongly suspect that comparing gene sequences to discern closeness of relationships between different creatures will be seen by future generations uh, to be laughably naive. The whole business of protein engineering might take us a century to work out. Okay, so gene sequencing might end up being seen as a relatively useless comparison mechanism. I mean, telling me that I share 98% of my genes with a chimp isn't a lot of use when I know that I share 75% of my genes with a banana. <laughs> <laughs> so the question of common descent is an example of an issue uh, where a Christian might simply reserve judgment and wait patiently for all the facts to be known. Okay, so that's the first example. The second one is the issue we have been talking about in this episode, the question of genetic diversity. That is presented to us as an insurmountable obstacle to belief in an historical Adam and Eve. But remember that the theory is built on mathematical models. They're just giant spreadsheets, really, with all sorts of assumptions embedded within them. Now, I could be slightly mean at this point and remind you of the models that predicted 500,000 deaths in the UK from COVID. Models aren't facts. In this example, 
remember that all the diversity models assume that the rate of mutation never changes over time. Now, if that assumption is wrong, which it may well be, then all the arguments over genetic diversity disappear. So your second principle is that there are times we just have to wait for all the facts to come in. There are situations when Christians must be patient, we must live with some tension, and we must reserve judgment until all those facts are in. What's your third principle, Jim? Uh, The final principle is to be intellectually curious. I mean, if I had just finished with the first two principles, it might have sounded as if I was advocating that we all retreat into the, the, you know, the cloud of unknowing. <clears throat> so academics like Swamidas and Craig should be commended for at least having a go. Some of their insights might end up being tremendously useful. I mean, I, I spent a few hours last night staring at their complicated, I showed some of their complicated diagrams to you, um, Ollie, and, 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 and it caused me to realize just how little I know about these things. So just to give you an example, It's very common in these sorts of conversations to confuse genetic ancestry with genealogical ancestry. And the two concepts are completely different. The story of DNA sequences in my chromosomes is different from the story of my parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents. I was amazed to learn from Swamidas that if I trace my family tree back 250 years, two-thirds of my ancestors supplied me with no genetic data. They're what's called genetic ghosts. Go back 500 years, and you discover that only one out of a thousand ancestors leave us any DNA. That that blew my mind. Now, it's quite possible that some young Christian with an interest in science and an unshakable belief in God as an intelligent designer might develop novel ideas that advance science and which, at the same time, resolve the tension between theology and science. Okay, so anyway, those are my, my three principles. For the general Christian population, start with Scripture. That is the main reason why I reject the biologos approach to the origins question. Scripture falls into disrepute if there is no historical Adam and Eve. Secondly, be prepared to reserve judgment. Sometimes we have to be patient. We have to wait until all the facts come in. And finally, at the same time, be intellectually curious, because faith is never defeated by facts. Thank you, Jim. That's a really strong start to Series 5. I suspect there might be a number of questions people have off the back of this first episode. Um, it's so important to ask questions and to investigate things. So if you do have a question, please don't hesitate to get in touch via our email address, theequipproject at gmail.com, or via Twitter or Instagram, both of which use the handle theequipproject. Uh, so do get in touch with us there and give us a follow. Please continue to rate and review the podcast and share it with friends and family. Your support and encouragement is always greatly appreciated. Mm-hmm.